0: oh i don't want to talk about bicycle helmets don't talk about badgers and bicycle helmets
1: so this uh researcher named peck van andel he got a couple to have sex inside an mri scanner
2: welcome to our third and final for this year transmission prize 2015 podcast and this time you're going to hear from sir david spiegelhalter and from zoe cormier zoe cormier is a science writer And she wrote a very big book last year, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism in Science. And we love Zoe.
3: Zoe really sees science as a tool to understanding how amazing the world is and doesn't really understand why everyone doesn't want to use it. (laughs) Um, Her whole approach is to take science and put it where you don't expect to see it. And she was really instrumental in getting science into festivals um, through her organisation, Guerrilla Science. Um, She was on the Salon North stage in Mm -hmm. Harrogate, um, and presented the Harrogate audience with Freud's idea of clitoral-vaginal transfer. <laughs> and
2: that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> they had lots to talk about in Betty's the next day. <laughs> and her book this year, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, from Profile, is one that looks at our base impulses and how much they are part of being human. And more than that, without them, we wouldn't really understand much about ourselves and how we operate. It also takes a look at how we must question science, how ice-peak lobotomies were used to treat homosexuality, Until a leading scientist who was gay got up at the American Psychiatric Association in a mask and a wig, risking everything, to say homosexuality should not be classed as a mental illness. He stood up and said, I am a homosexual, I am a psychiatrist. Science is full of people, people are flawed, and science can be wrong.
3: For... for us at Salon London, Juliet, mm-hmm. is Zoe's involvement um, between music and science that's really captured our interest, and certainly um, the interest of our audience. And um, it's been really interesting to see music in neuroscience as a new discipline really emerging. Um, as as you'll hear from this clip from Zoe, until recently, music was really dismissed as not important um, in the brain at all.
1: Steven Pinker is a very well-known neuroscientist and writer, and he said, What benefit could there be to diverting time and energy to making plinking noises? As far as biological cause and effect are concerned, music is useless. Reminds me a little bit of the quote about the clitoris. Well, <coughs> and he called it auditory cheesecake. He said that it just takes advantage takes advantage of the structures in your brain that process language. But like cheesecake, it's... which takes advantage of the receptors on your tongue that look for nutrition, it's not adaptive and it's not essential. He meant that it was sonic junk food. Another scientist, Dan Sperber, a French guy, went even further, and he called it an evolutionary parasite. Music for 40 years was denigrated by neuroscientists as being unimportant. But then a new generation of young scientists who had previously trained as musicians, they said, well, wait a minute. Language and music share many of the same brain structures, but not all of them, and you can have a musia without aphasia, which is the inability to speak, which you can get suffering a stroke. And this was a a composer, Vasarian Sarian He had a stroke ten years before his death, and he lost the ability to speak, but he could still compose symphonies, and that was how he continued to uh, converse with his wife, was through music. Moreover, every single human culture makes music. Not every human culture has the number zero, or architecture, or stratified social structures. Every single human culture make music. Now, this is a piece of a bone uh, from a bear. It's 40,000 years old, and it's thought to be a flute. If it is a flute, it is actually the oldest artifact ever recovered made by the hands of man. Moreover, they've now done acoustic work on caves in Europe. I'll, I'll I'll be as quick as I can. They've done acoustic work on caves where they have been puzzled by strange ochre markings that weren't just drawings, but sort of lines drawn here and there on the stalagmites springing up from the ground. When they measured the acoustics in the caves, they found that those markings were at the precise point that had the best acoustics where you could make the loudest sound. And they found shards of bone on the ground next to the stalagmites, and they think that what they were doing was marking the points that they could bang the rock with bone to make loud noises. So even though they weren't going, check, check, mic, check, they were basically doing the exact same thing and these are about 60,000 years old. From the time that we were cave dwellers, we were acoustic technicians.
2: Yeah, she was a big hit at our Acid House Salon in November. And I think our audience is very interested in music. And I think also that what's a big part of Zoe's book is that how music is used therapeutically now and why that's having such an impact. Um, and there's incredible research that shows that when music plays all the neurons pulse in synchronicity.
3: Oh, yes, yeah, she talks about it as a as a recent discovery, um, I think 2008 or something. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible that this subject has laid dormant for so many years in terms of its usefulness mm-hmm. in science. And suddenly it's being studied seriously because she says so many musicians are going into neuroscience because it's something that's given them so much pleasure they don't really understand mm-hmm. how it works in the brain and they want to go and and find out we well, go um,
2: back to all those advances in neuroscience aren't we and that brain imaging is made possible and we can actually see the impact of the things that we almost see as hobby or peripheral they're actually integral
3: it's a really interesting time and certainly music is something we want to explore even more this year music is something London. that's
2: in every society every oh, yes. human society has ever existed and exists today so <laughs> we definitely want to explore it
3: and she said something really interesting which might be interesting to you Juliet which is that um, people who sing in choirs uh, have, um, have a surge in oxytocin yeah is this true?
2: yeah it's true <laughs> yeah and, they, and there's actually evidence coming out that um, their heartbeats synchronise as well which is interesting
3: everyone should join a choir yeah <laughs> But we'll leave the last words to
1: Zoe herself. So there's a DJ slash neuroscientist. He wanted to know what kind of music do animals like? How did we inherit this? So what kind of music do you think marmosets like? He tested this on marmosets. Jungle? Surely it's jungle. So he put them into this maze. So he'd put the marmoset there, and then he'd play different kinds of music from speakers at either end. And he tested them on classical, electronic, tech like everything he could get his hands on. And the answer is silence. They always preferred silence. Music is uniquely human. We alone are the musical monkey. It is a gift. And no other species quite makes what we do. We are also the druggiest monkey. There is no species on the face of the earth that indulges in these things more than we do, and they have taught us an enormous amount about ourselves. And we are also sexually extremely unique in the animal kingdom. So what has science taught us about our base pursuits? What do hedonistic impulses teach us about what it means to be human? Well... I'll leave that for you to think about. But what I would like to say that our base pursuits have informed our highest intellectual achievements far more than we would like to think. So what does it truly mean to sin? And what does it really mean to be cool? Thank you.
3: Were you surprised to see Sir David Spiegelholzer on the shortlist? I
1: was really pleased to see him there.
0: I mean, I've done a couple of events for Salon. You know, I've done one on sort of general risk stuff, and then I did the sex thing at Latitude. I, is it, I've got an odd... My job has got an odd... Title: Public Understanding of Risk. Because um, I think people are rather good at understanding risk. We live with it, you know, all our lives. We all have to deal with uncertainty and how in in, in, in what might happen to us when we cross the road, when we go out for the day, um, when we start a new relationship, and we deal with this rather well. We, we none of us know what's going to happen, and and that's just part of life. So the, the problem happens is when you have risks where. And um, somebody says, oh, well, you know, we know what the risks are and people just don't understand them. Well, how do you get the public to understand risk? The problem happens is when there are specific risks about your health or your finances or, or um uh, you know things that might happen to you, where actually maybe there is some quite good data. Maybe maybe we do have a good feeling for what the chances are about of things happening, and then I think it is quite important that people have got a feeling of what the magnitude of the of the chances are, so they don't get you know overly concerned with what is actually a very very unlikely occurrence. And uh, there are you know established ways that I and others have worked on. For putting those things over, my my particular metaphor I like is to get people to think about the possible futures. You know, out of a hundred things that might happen to you in the next year, well, you know, most of them are rather good, and uh, some of them aren't. Some of them are completely disastrous, but you know, those are actually very unlikely to happen. And so, uh, I, I, I like the idea of thinking about the possible things that might happen. But then, you know, out, roughly trying to say, out of the hundred. Out of a hundred things that might happen, well, just you know, maybe one is really bad, um, but the rest are rest are okay, and that gives us a put enables us to put things into perspective. The, the media are not great at dealing with risk because the media deal with what psychologists called negative frames. They always want to put everything in terms of the the the, the you know, this could be disastrous, this could be really bad. You know, they love. Headlines that uh, make people think the world is threatening, and uh, you know we 're all going to hell in the handcuff essentially so that that 's a very popular way in which the media portray things and uh, i i th- I find it fascinating the way you can take a story and, and make it look good or look bad. you know you can talk about well you know two um, you know, percent of babies die you know, in the heart surgery or whatever, and then you can talk about, what, 98% survive. And, uh, you know, you get a very different emotional feeling depending on how you, how you describe these numbers. Um, and I love playing with those. I, I, you know, I must say I've you know, done some of that uh, positive framing and negative framing myself. Um, A nice example is when you're talking about risks of climate change and uh, uh, typically the media will say, oh, temperature rise could be as high as 10 degrees. Um, But you could equally well say, and people have, um, temperature rise is very unlikely to be greater than 10 degrees. And suddenly your emotional feeling is very different having heard those numbers, the same numbers being described in, in different ways. I, I, I quite like using a couple of units for describing risks. And uh, to think of that, you need to think of two different types of risks. You've, you've got what to call acute risks, the things that can uh, kill you or injure you on the spot. But if you survive them, you're just fine. So riding a motorbike is like that or um, going on a parachute jump or, or whatever. And um, there's this uh, unit, a micromort, which is one in a million chance of death. Which is rather good for making those comparisons because it means we can compare the risks of, of hand gliding with the risks of taking heroin with the risks of, um, uh, yeah, um oh, good, you know, what you know, with riding on a motorbike with, uh, and and, and uh, or even flying in a plane, um, and 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 so on, and uh, it means that we can. And make a fair comparison between these different things that we might choose to do, but there's another unit which I particularly like the micro life, um, which is to do with the chronic risks—the things that um, don't kill us on the spot. I'm thinking of things like drinking and lack of exercise and um, smoking and so on—that um, but actually damage our health in the long term. And a micro life, which we which we use as a unit, which is something that. Is a, is a millionth of your lifetime and a millionth of your lifetime roughly about half an hour because uh, on average adults are going to live you know once they reach adulthood reach another fifty five or sixty years and it turns out that fifty seven years is a million half hours so if you 're a young person a young adult you 've got you know a million half hours to fritter away during your lifetime and um, but you can earn or lose some of those only you know, only, you know uh, probably you can't guarantee any, any of these things at all, um, by the way you you live your life. So that if you, for example, um, you know smoke, you're losing about um, ten micro lives a day. It's five hours a day out of your life on average. You're losing if you smoke twenty a day. Um, of course, you may be lucky and you know, live to a ripe old age, but actually, it's fairly unlikely. Um, and we can do that with other things, with smoking and drinking and make these comparisons. So I, what I like is trying to reduce all the risks and threats that we might be exposed to, to simple whole numbers, which allows us to make, make um, simple comparisons between horse riding and taking ecstasy or heroin and hand gliding. I I wanted to write a book about sex and statistics, partly because it just seemed a great opportunity to write a book with the title Sex by Numbers, and I couldn't resist that chance. And to work with the Wellcome Collection and their exhibition of Institute of Sexology seemed a wonderful opportunity. But also, you know, it's a chance to write a book about statistics that is disguised as something about sex. And people, I hope, will buy it and read it because it's about sex. But in fact, maybe they might learn something about statistics. Because um, one of the things I bring into the book, which I'm really quite pleased with, is to say that you know numbers about anything, but particularly about sex, are not all equally valuable. You've got some great numbers about sex, which are what I call four star statistics—ones you can really believe—and then you've got some absolute stinkers. Numbers are just people make up. They get on the web, and people keep on peddling them, and, and so on. And these are zero or one star, and then you've got you know numbers in between, which are fairly reliable but not not great, and so on. So um, it, it's it's a great opportunity to bring in this idea that not all numbers are equally valuable you know some are just you know just unreliable that's well, what the joke one is because you know men think of sex every seven seconds or whatever and um, you know it's very difficult to work out where that came from I can't find the source of it but it's, it's it's complete drivel in the actual studies that people have tried to do on when people think of sex and how much they think of sex they found among young you know certainly among young people that people think of food even more than sex during the day. Although, you know, people do think of sex. And there's a lot of variation, of course, about how much people think of it. Of course, those studies are quite difficult to do. You know, do you ask people just to record how often they think of something? Um, And people have tried that, having little clickers. So they click every time they think about sex. But that's, you know, makes people very self-conscious, of course. Um, But other studies have just given people, you know, random alerts on their phones, on their smartphones. And for them to have to then fill in from a list, what are you thinking about at the moment? And that enables you to work out actually what proportion of the time people are thinking about sex. And as I said, they, what they find is that people think about food a lot more than they think about sex.
3: You've been hearing about two of the speakers on the Transmission Prize shortlist 2015. We've been hearing about Sir David Spiegelhalter, who's the Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk, and from the guerrilla science founder and writer Zoe Cormier. So the books on our short list are Lucinda Hawksley with March, Women, March, which is published by Carlton Books. Julian Bugini's
2: book, The Virtues of the Table, is published by Granter.
3: Professor Charles Howe with his Box of Birds is published by Unbound.
2: Margaret Heffernan wrote A Bigger Prize and it's published by Simon & Schuster.
3: And Jamie Bartlett wrote The Dark Net, which is published by Heinemann at Random House. Sex by Numbers by David spiegel will be published by Profile Books on the 2nd of April.
2: And Zoe Cormier wrote Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and it's published by Profile Books.